stereotypes, you know, towards black people oftentimes have really harmed them. You know, and some of them, it's not totally false and it's not totally true, but we don't have a complete picture. So it doesn't allow for people, this mind to be open enough to really see the complexity and humanity of a people of, of a certain race. And so to me, that is, that is, you know, a number of the layers of how privilege exists and to acknowledge that we're all privileged in different ways, right? It's just that the conversation right now is around race. We're all privileged in different ways. I'm privileged to be taller than the average person. I can reach things, you know, that's a privilege. And, and I'm aware of it. I was born in America. Great. That's a privilege. I was born in a, in, in a, a, a household that was generally quite compassionate. I have an amazing mother. That's a privilege. I know people who don't have that. And so I acknowledge that in my own life. The greatest problem in this world is that people are too fucking scared to be themselves. Scared of what others think. Why? Because society made you fit into a tiny little box. Happiness is always going to be a myth if you stay in that little box. You need to wake up to who you truly are. Find some courage. Find some fucking balls to be yourself. Your mental, emotional, physical and spiritual health is all going to be out of whack, up and down, left and right when this shit happens. You're constantly seeking shit outside yourself. Drugs, sex, alcohol, food, people, all that shit that is temporarily helping you feel something greater. I've done all this and it doesn't fucking work. You are 1,000 times more than what you think than what you believe, and that happiness is real. And that it doesn't come in a bottle labeled prescription drugs or 4X lager. Well, maybe 4X lager, but not long-term. It actually comes from within you. Deep inside you is inner peace, but you only need to know how to find it. Well, welcome to the answer, to the Feeling Alive podcast with Luca Ritti. It's time to be who you came here to be, son. Welcome to episode 32, ladies and gentlemen, of the Feeling Alive with Luca Ridi podcast. Today's episode is with Andrew McFarlane, aka Thankful Andrew on Instagram. And we're talking about privilege, in particular white privilege, but also the different degrees of privilege. And why I got Andrew on today was because of his recent post on Instagram, um, on his perspective on privilege, and it was a really profound experience and perspective and I just wanted to go deeper on that. Now Andrew grew up in America as an actor, now he is an entrepreneur and speaker helping inspire and empower people through his online presence, sharing good vibes, deep wisdom about life, health, awareness, self-expression, freedom and spirituality. And so I really want you to take this man's perspective on the race revolution at the moment and also his wisdom and his eloquent language which is beautiful uh, there's so many crazy experiences that he shares in this episode like when he left hollywood and why he left hollywood which is very interesting because it ties into what we're talking about so enjoy this episode All aboard. welcome back to the feeling alive podcast with luca reedy i'm here with my man andrew mcfarlane and today we're talking privilege. It's such an uh, interesting time in this world with, I mean, 2020 hit us in the face. But this today when we talk about privilege, I want to really connect it to what's happening in the world right now, and that is 
the uh, racial revolution, if you if you like. And I watched a recent video on Instagram of Andrew McFarlane, and it is it spoke words to me, not only me but many other uh, people out there, based on the comments and the views. So, without further ado, I welcome Andrew. Thanks for joining me, brother. Thanks for having me. Man, first of all, I mean, obviously we're going to get into privilege and talk about that, but I want to just, I ask all my guests this, talking about like a, I mean, the the Feeling Alive podcast is about feeling alive from within and cultivating that inner well-being. And so I'd like to know what you do on a daily basis or whether it's a morning ritual or a daily ritual to enhance that Mm. uh, well-being, brother. Yeah, so for me, I'm a, a really strong um, believer in the power of meditation, and mm. so I've been meditating daily for the last 15 years, and so that's something that I do in the morning, every morning before I kind of go about my day, um, Wicked. and then, you know, really exercise, yoga, so whatever that looks like, and that's evolved a lot for me as I've practiced more, because I started practicing yoga, asana also about 15 years ago uh, with my meditation. And so that's a big part of my life, Um, you know, going to the gym, actually just getting energy moving in my body and then having a a mindful approach to my diet as well. Because, you know, anybody who's put attention towards feeling alive and feeling good realizes that you can't really separate any aspect of that. And so I find that I'm in this uh, perpetual uh, practice of really refining my routine and refining the things that really help me even, you know, down to sleep, like when I eat at night so that I sleep well, so that when I wake up in the morning, next, the next day I'm clear and balanced and feeling mm. you know, rejuvenated and refreshed. And so for me, it, it's really, it's really everything and, and finding that balance. Yeah. Yeah, totally. A meditation. How long have you been doing that for? Yeah. 15 years. Holy shit. You're a master. And um, I, I also just want to throw this in there. Did I know you've you're you're the ju- you're known as the juice juice consultant? Do you <laughs> do you do a, <laughs> do you do a daily juice as well, or what's what's I'm your more, practice around that? I'm more into smoothies, to be honest. I I still drink juice. Um, I don't drink juice daily. I'm drinking smoothies more daily. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and but there was a time of you know I feel like uh, oftentimes I, I refer to juice and even specifically you know I started by drinking carrot juice which I know is a lot of people's stories because when you drink carrot juice it's really sweet and it's palatable and it's um it's kind of like the gateway uh, juice and yeah, it's like okay. a, it's a it's a initiation into health and so uh, for me I go through phases and, and it all evolves but yeah I, I started fasting mm. long long time ago and uh, really seeing the power of what that did to my health and having a different understanding mm. of really where energy comes from, because I think a lot of times we think we only get energy from food and wow. sort of just realize that, you know, your breath is, you know, one of the most powerful sources. It's the first thing you do when you're born and it's the last thing you do before you die. And so that's a really powerful source of energy and just mm. really uh, efficiency, right? Without, you know, going down this whole health route, but I always use this analogy. It's like people think that, you know, food is the same for everybody. When I often use this um, comparison, if you look at like a Hummer vehicle versus a Mm. Prius, same gas goes into a Prius that goes into a Hummer, but a Hummer will get, you know, 10 miles per gallon and a Prius might get 50 miles per gallon. And so it's really Mm. about the efficiency of the vehicle. And so part of, you know, cleaning your body out and all of that is allowing you to run more efficiently 
and uh, absorb things differently than other people. Therefore, you won't need as much yeah. because your body's actually utilizing it. So fasting is a big part of that. Juicing is another one of those things that helps. And mm. so for me, yeah. Man, man, like I think for a lot of people listening, um, juicing and fasting is sort of such a i mean such a very there's so many different ways you can do it do you do like an intermittent fast or a 24-hour fast or what what works for you with that what type of fast works for you so i i definitely like the experience of intermittent fasting it's not something that i do religiously it depends on the day but like i said i really uh, don't like to eat too late in the evening. I try to have my last before like 7 p.m. if I can. So that way, yeah. I, you know, when I go to bed and usually around 8.30 or 9, I've had time to process that. And then in the morning, you know, depending on how I'm feeling and what I'm going to do, I might wait for a little bit before I eat as well. Uh, but in yeah. terms of actual fasting, I've done everything from dry fasting, which is really intense. So that's, no, that's no water, no food. I, don't, I can't say that truthfully uh, on a physical level. I'm a huge fan of that. Water fasting. <laughs> um, yeah. It's because it's just so difficult. And also your body doesn't really flush everything out. And so um, water fasting is great. But I also have to be in a, time, a place and time when I can block things out of my schedule because it's really hard for me to function normally. And I've got business that I run and uh, things that are going on. And so I most often will juice fast. Uh, but then if I mm. feel like I really want to go into a deeper layer of cleansing, I might, you know, transition from a juice fast into a water fast for maybe a day or two and then go back into juicing. And then it's really intuitive for me uh, at this stage, okay. which I think is really important as well, that we totally. get beyond all of these concepts around, you know, we're, humans are so interesting because we're the only, we're, you know, we're the sickest creatures on the planet, right? And I think that that's, mm. you can't argue that. And we're the most, um, uh, cerebral about our experience when it comes to health and food and so you don't mm. see other animals in their natural state not to my knowledge that have the same kinds of chronic illnesses at the same rate that we do and yet we're supposed yeah. to be so intelligent and if our health isn't a reflection of our ignorance i don't know what is and so mm. the fact that people are so into all these micronutrients and this thing and that thing but yet we are still so sick to me is kind of a, a weird dichotomy where we really need to get more intuitive because your body knows you have intuition yeah. when you're a baby, you know, you want to reach for your mother's breast because there's milk in there and nobody had to tell you that. But I think that there's, yeah. there's this um, process of us becoming domesticated and really pushing away our intuition, right? Mm -hmm. Where we, uh, you know, I see parents tell their kids when their kids are at the dinner table and they're like, you need to finish your food or you're not going to leave the table. And I thought, you know, this kid has never, you, he cried his whole childhood when he was hungry, right? Mm -hmm. And now you think your kid's going to starve themselves? It's like, no, kids know what they, when they're not hungry anymore and when they don't want to eat. Your mm -hmm. kid's not going to kill himself uh, in front of you. But there, yeah. we, it's the socialization, right? It's, the, it's us getting to the point where we stop trusting ourselves. And so that, that goes for our healing journey, you know, and um, just on a day-to-day -day basis, really getting attuned to, mindfully being conscious of when you eat something how does it make you feel when you smell it yeah. what are you attracted to really really getting beyond the mind which is hard for us to do because we live in such a mental totally. uh world yeah man totally and also what other people think too you know like i've been plant-based for a couple of years but like 
I think discernment is one of the biggest things we can have for ourselves and our body, our intuition, like you're saying, but it's like, also, I feel like there's a lot of identities that you might have to break in that process. Um, yep. it, it's a journey, man. But I think that's such a good, a, a good um, lesson for everyone listening is that, yeah, it is more about just tuning into what you feel and takes a long process. I mean, you've been meditating for 15 years. I'm sure it wasn't like that on day one. <laughs> oh, no. So, right. No way. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but let's let's talk privilege, brother. And I, I, I mean, this is going to be a really powerful episode. I, I know for sure. And I, I've seen so much of your wisdom come through already on Instagram. But before we do, I mean, everyone listening can hear your accent. Where are you from? And just to give some context around what we're going to talk into now. Yeah. So my parents are from Jamaica. So I was born in Florida and yep. moved to LA when I was four, 14 years old. And so I lived in yep. LA for majority of my life. And mm. uh, my experience is quite interesting. You know, I, I reflect on the greater conversation that's happening now and mm. see how there are, you know, anomalies and then there are consistencies. And so uh, as that relates to my life, like I grew up in a, when I was until I was maybe about, I don't know, nine years old, I was in a pretty poor neighborhood. And then my okay. mom had a really strong intention, poor neighborhood, predominantly black. My mom wanted to see if she could get us out of this neighborhood and move us to a more kind of middle-class neighborhood, which she was able to do uh, just from working really, really hard as a nurse. She would send us to Jamaica for the summer so she could work double time and didn't have to take care of us. And so she really did what she she you know, she made yeah. her, her best effort to change our circumstance. So I went from being in a predominantly black neighborhood to a predominantly white neighborhood, right? And so that was also really interesting to see the kind of juxtaposition as to um, the new reality and also how people perceive me within that reality. Because, uh, you know, I would oftentimes get comments around how people believe they'd say, oh, you speak white. And for me, I feel like that's like, I understand what people are saying, but it's one of those things that reflects people's unconsciousness around race. Because when I mm. hear that, what I hear someone saying is that because I'm maybe articulate and eloquent and yeah, maybe totally. my vocabulary is bigger than the, the average black person that they've met, that that is an attribute that they only prescribe to someone who is white, which is part of the problem with the stereotypes that exist around black people. So they kind of reveal their ignorance. Uh, in those kinds of statements because they believe it's well-meaning. And another thing, too, that someone said, I was reading a blog, and of, of, it was kind of a, about you know being the token black person amongst other white people. And he shared something around how his white friends would say, you're the whitest black person I know, as if that was a compliment, right? As if, as if to be yeah. white was to elevate himself beyond his blackness as to imagine that being black is a, bur a burden to him, right? Or something that mm -hmm. he wants to move away from. And so these to me are, um, you know, in the, the multitude of how these kinds of subtle ignorance, ignorances express themselves, they're a reflection of um, social conditioning and the lack of awareness around the complexity of, of characteristics that black human beings have and can show up within because we haven't oftentimes lived in a society that has reflected the, these, uh, you know, nuanced attributes of, of who we are as people. And so, um, mm -hmm. I grew up as an actor as well. I started acting when I was quite young. I was about 12 years old when I started modeling and acting really cause I didn't want to yeah. be in school. And I was also really interested in, in, 
just what it brought out of me to become a performer. And it's also just, I feel part of my personality. Um, and yeah. then also Hollywood revealed a lot of things to me, you know, right. Um, I can say that in this conversation of privilege, uh, I was very privileged to have a mother who was willing to, uh, really support my dreams and and make some significant mm -hmm. sacrifices for that you know my sister was also acting at the time as well and you know having found a, a a reasonable amount of success in the industry compared to a lot of people i also experienced the you could say privilege and the responsibility slash burden of of just making a lot of money at a young age right and seeing what that does to family dynamics and seeing what that does to um, even your experience around money, right? Because having money is a gift and it's a curse, right? Because if you're born into mm -hmm. money or you, let's say you make a lot of money, um, comparatively to other people without exerting a lot of effort, you have this perception that maybe it's easier to come by than it is, right? Or maybe it's not yeah. as valuable as it is to other people. And so yeah. privilege is that gift and that curse of, of having abundance and, and the beauty of that and simultaneously the lack of perspective that you have because you're only mm -hmm. living in one arena, right? I, I've never had a regular job. I've never had someone pay me hourly to work in a cafe, which I'm super grateful for. And simultaneously, I also know that there are certain things that I have to make an effort to be able to relate to someone's situation because the best that I can do is imagine it. I can't actually mm. speak from a place of experience. Right. So, um, you know, kind of long story short, that's been my existence. At one point, I stopped acting for a multitude of reasons, but one of them also being because I was really present to the stereotypes that I felt I was perpetuating wow. through the stories that were being told. Right. Every five or six out of every 10 auditions that I got were for some person who was in an interrogation room trying to convince the cops why they didn't kill somebody or why they didn't steal something. And I'm like, why am I always Whoa. this criminal, right? Like, why am I always portraying or this kind of person? Dang. This isn't reflective of who we are. And I don't want to bring too much truth to this. And it's because in large part, this is how the media has. I don't know. You know, it's been a long time. I stopped acting maybe yeah. nine or 10 years ago. But this is how historically the media has portrayed black men, black people. And this creates those ideas where people are amazed that you can string a sentence together in a certain way, right? And so uh, I just felt like I wanted to be conscious of what I was uh, supporting in the world. And, and, you know, that path never didn't feel aligned for me anymore. So then I kind of got into the juice thing and, and now have been, you know, actively an entrepreneur for the last 10 years. And, um, mm. and that's been, yeah, that's been my journey. Man, it's, it's so powerful what you just said about act how you why you left acting because of the roles that you were getting that you were receiving and mm -hmm. because you were in you were in you spent 30 odd episodes in my wife and kids am i right yeah yeah i don't remember exactly and, how many episodes, but i was doing it for five years i was on that show yeah and uh, uh, i saw some clips of you in there and then dance flick as well which is predominantly black featured films black That's people right. featured films right and yep. so what were those experiences in the sense because they i mean from the public that i mean dance flick was friggin funny as and yep. my wife and kids was also hilarious yep. what are your perspectives of being in those two shows as opposed to like the being in interrogation yeah i, I think that like 
there is like the Wayans brothers who are, um, you know, the primary creators of, of those two projects. They're kind of an anomaly in Hollywood, to be honest, because one, you've never seen a family who's kind of generationally uh, consistently created uh, successful projects, right? That's, that's, yeah. that's the first time that that's existed. Um, and two, it, you know, the content was just funny. I feel like it, it crossed racial borders because the, all the conversations weren't about race. It was like, you got to see a family and yeah, they're black and great. It's the same way that when you watch a sitcom, you're not like, wow, that's so interesting. It's a white show. Like what a, what a, what a cultural insight into their experience. Like we're just watching people. Right. And mm -hmm. so in the same way, I feel like that is the journey that we want to, that's the place we want to get to where people start just seeing individuals as humans, as opposed to going, Oh, that's a black, that's a black show. Cause there's all black people. Mm -hmm. It's like, and so my experience was great because I just love the content. I love doing comedy. It's, it's just something that I, I, um, <laughs> I kind of have a strong affinity towards. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't me playing a criminal. It wasn't me playing some sort of mm -hmm. suspect. And so, uh, and those were, you know, that show in particular was probably the most significant project I did in terms of duration, time and popularity. And it was popular mm. all over the world. It still runs on in Brazil. It's really popular. And in UK for a long time it was really, really popular. Um, and so, uh, that in some ways kind of jaded me cause it was, it was almost too good. And then after that show was finished and having to go back into the world of auditioning, it was just a contrast of like, oh yeah, this again. Um, and so. Yeah, it was positive. Yeah, right. It was positive, and it, it was definitely a, a different experience for for all those reasons. Yeah, totally. And in that sense, you're just like, okay, cool. I've done I've done what I want to do, and I, I figured out what I enjoy, and I'm just going to leave now. So, in a sense, yeah. it almost like it puts you in your next path. In that sense, right? Yeah, exactly. I think that mm -hmm. everything changes for us, no matter what we do. Right? It's like evolution is just natural internally and externally. And and uh, when you start, for me, when I started acting one of my dreams was to be on a TV show and to see what that was like. Wow. And, you know, as a kid, you've got aspirations and certain things mean things to you. Like fame is, you know, this mystical uh, experience that you, you desire. And then you get a little bit of it and you're like, okay, cool. I get it. Like I see where it's beautiful. I also see the limitations of it. Right. Like I feel Hollywood is the height of ego in, in, yeah. in all ways, right. In, terms of of people being overly prideful and arrogant and also it, it creates a lot of insecurity in people as well if they feel like they're not perceived the way they want to be perceived and so mm -hmm. uh, i got to really see that although i believed because part of the american dream is get rich get famous right have power and that's the the prescription for happiness and then you get there and you go yeah. oh okay i see on one level why this is fun but this isn't fulfilling my soul this isn't really, really bringing me a genuine feeling of, 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 mm. of fulfillment and purpose. And so um, while on a human level, I love the experience of acting, I just couldn't keep doing it for the reasons that I started in, in some ways. Yeah. And it's a, it's a multitude of things, right? And so yeah. uh, I just started getting more into, you know, who am I becoming and how am I showing up in the world? And, and that led me into, you know, meditation and yoga and really getting a lot more mindful about my, uh, my soul's evolution. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, brother. Beautiful. So in the sense of, if, of privilege, obviously we've seen you in Hollywood where you would have seen a lot of people that are very wealthy um, mm -hmm. and you would have also seen, obviously, obviously you've grown up in LA, in a poor black community. You've seen a very distinct contrast of um, 
social wealth, right? Mm-hmm. Where, when I first experienced, when I first understood privilege and started, only just came out recently my understanding of privilege when the race riots happened and, and everything with George Floyd went down and I was like, oh, my God, yeah, that's right. Pr- privilege, I always thought privilege was just a money thing. And mm. if we grew up with a certain status, we were like, obviously, we're more privileged. Like if you think about us born in the Western world as opposed to the like a second or third world country, like we are a very much more privileged in that sense. And right. you talked about this in your, in your in- Instagram video on white privilege. How does wealth privilege differ from white privilege? Right. Okay, great. Um, so I think the first thing before I even go down this rabbit hole, it's important to acknowledge the things that I've noticed that people sort of uh, get defensive about, right? Yeah. In the conversation, a lot of times people can't hear everything else that I want to share because they believe that the intention around the conversation is to make people feel guilty or to mm. feel ashamed for something that they can't control, right? Just yeah. like the blackness yeah. on my skin, I can't control it. The whiteness on someone else's yeah. skin, they cannot control it. So the intention behind this isn't to make someone feel bad or ashamed or guilty. It's really just to, to, to have a consideration, right? Just to yeah. expand someone's perspective because we don't know the things that we don't know. And if we're blind to something, we have conversations to hopefully, hopefully enlighten those blind spots. So, uh, there, a lot of times people look at my life and, you know, in the conversation, I have friends who are white who, you know, aren't doing as well as me financially. And they look and they say, well, white privilege doesn't exist because look at you, Andrew, you're doing great. You're black and I'm white and I'm still broke. So where is the privilege in this? The first thing Mm -hmm. that I always say is that we're not speaking about you as an individual specifically we're seeking it about a general tonality and a reflection of a majority of situations. Am I reflective of the entire experience of black Americans? No, definitely not, right? I'm one individual and there are anomalies, right? So we need to understand the difference between the exception and the rule. The majority of black Mm -hmm. people are in poverty. The majority of white people comparatively are doing much better economically. So that's, that's one thing to, to be aware of, but also that there is social privilege, there is perceptual privilege, right? There is a difference between uh, being in a situation where, you know, I watched a video of a former Saturday Night Live actor who's black, who was jogging down the street in LA, and this happened a couple days ago, right? Jogging down the street. So he's famous and he's rich, Mm -hmm. okay? And the cops run up on him, their guns are out, tell him to get on the floor, put their knee on his neck, he's handcuffed, and uh, put in the back of a car, and he's telling them, he's like, Google my name, like, you guys are making a huge mistake, I'm not who you think I am, and they Google his name, and then they say, oh, we're sorry, we did this to you. And so, this is one of those things, yeah, where he's he's, he's a suspect, and he's also, the way that even those he's treated, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, they're saying he fit the description. And I was thinking, I was like, what if I told the cops, you know, a middle-aged white man in a suit came to my house, robbed me, uh, are they going to run up on every middle-aged white man within a suit in the same way, right? 
I can't make too many assumptions, but my <laughs> sense is, is that the approach that they have is going to be a little bit different, right? They might yeah. they might have conversations with all of them, but are they going to throw every middle-aged man that they see that fits that description, right? Somewhere between five foot and six foot, you know, wearing a suit, mid-40s, white guy. Are they going to put that mm. guy on the ground and put their knee on his neck? I haven't seen that, right? Yes, now we know that there are also, we have to, we have to get really into the, the nuances of all these things. Historically, that's not um, the description that people have been given of people who've committed these kinds of crimes, right? So yeah. the cops are going off of all of these subconscious uh, understandings they have that they probably aren't conscious of. Maybe some of them are, maybe some of them aren't. Yeah. But this is why yeah. they are approaching these situations that way, which also doesn't make it right. And so there is a difference between living in a society, right, where, you know, we can just even talk strict numbers, you know, uh, black men are historically given 20% more time in prison for the same crimes that white men commit. Black neighborhoods are policed, therefore you have higher rates of incarceration for nonviolent crimes, so these are drug offenses, than white neighborhoods, although there's no statistical difference between the rate at which black people do drugs and white people do drugs, right? So mm -hmm. There are all kinds of things that are in place in the system that are strictly based on color that have created the situation that we're in. And if we also want to look at the economics of it, because there is a crossover, a lot of times people will look and they say, well, that's privilege because of class, right? Because, you know, this white person had more money, so then they could go to, they had, you know, more access to lawyers and then that got them off. And it's like, okay, well, let's trace the money back. Why, you know, why do white people have more generational wealth? Well, it's because things like slavery, redlining, you know, like ghettos were created, the ghettos that exist, um, you know, schools, school, school systems are based on property tax. And so now black people aren't getting educated as much. And so then that creates a higher rate of them, you know, not having job options. So they're going to do things that are illegal wow. to survive and then that puts them in prison. So there's all kinds of things that uh, create a circumstance that people who are white in the majority, I'm not speaking to you specifically, right? right? Like depending on where you are, maybe you haven't experienced it, or maybe you're just not conscious of it, right? And that's another thing. Yeah. You're unaware of what you're unaware of. And I often use this analogy of, let's say, men versus women, right? Mm -hmm. I grew up around a lot of women. So I had uh, the, for the, the, the joy of becoming more aware of some of the nuances of their experience that a lot yeah. of men were not aware of. And one thing that totally. I talk to my male friends about is that, you know, you nine times out of 10 don't leave the grocery store at night or leave a bar and have this really strong sense of fear and caution when you walk to your car. You're just unconscious of it. You're like, yeah, where are my keys? I got to go to my car. You're thinking about other things. Guess what? That's not the female experience. The female mm. experience is, is someone following me? Am I, uh, is my car underneath something that's well lit in case I do have an altercation? Can other people see me? Right? Do I have mace yeah. in my purse? How much access do I have? To, does, do other people know where I am right now? Will my friends check on me because I have someone to call when I get home and tell them I got home safely? This is a totally mm -hmm. different experience. And most men are blind to this, right? Mm. So this means that this unconsciousness is and that it is a privilege to be able to not have to think about it, yeah. right? The fact yeah. that you don't have to worry about this thing because men aren't getting raped at the same rates that 
women are getting raped, right? It just doesn't happen as often. I say it's never happened, but it's almost never happens. So this is why the male experience is different. The same thing goes for the white experience versus the black experience, right? There are Mm -hmm. things that people just aren't aware of and conscious of. And this is interesting because in this, I've started having more conversations and sharing things that have come up, right? Where, for example, growing up, I had women that I knew that liked me that I also knew wouldn't date me because of what their fathers and mothers would think. And so that was part of my experience. And the same way I actually had a, I did a Facebook live with a former partner of mine. We were together maybe 13 years ago. And she told me that she said, my dad was making, you know, comments that now knowing what I know, I really shouldn't have allowed it to just take place because I felt like I was more complicit in listening to him just share these things or ask me certain questions. And I didn't even know that, right? So this is things that I, I'm aware of as a, as a, as a, and have been aware of as a either subtle or overt um, element in the fabric of my existence. But there yeah. are things that we still don't even see, right? Just in the same way, let's talk about corporate America. Women who have, women and men who have names that, you know, are considered predominantly black names with the same credentials, same experience, get something like, I don't know, 30% of the interviews compared to people who have names that seem that they're white. Mm, so yeah. to me, this is one of those things that's like, there are all kinds of, of conscious and unconscious biasy that people have towards mm. people that they relate to or don't relate to yeah. or identify with in a certain way. And stereotypes you know, towards black people oftentimes have really harmed them. You know, and some of them, yeah. it's not totally false and it's not totally true, but we don't have a complete picture. So it doesn't allow for people, this mind to be open enough to really see the complexity and humanity of a people of, of a certain yeah. race. And so to me, that is, that is, you know, a number of the layers of how privilege exists and to acknowledge that we're all privileged in different ways, right? It's mm-hmm. just that the conversation right now is around race. We're all privileged mm-hmm. in different ways. I'm privileged to be taller than the average person. I can reach things, mm-hmm. you know, that's a privilege. And, and I'm aware of it. I was born in America. Great. That's a privilege. I was born in, in, in a, a, a household that was generally quite compassionate. I have an amazing mother. That's a privilege. I know people who don't have that. And so I yeah. acknowledge that in my own life, right? I'm not going to look at one aspect of my situation and say, oh, because I'm poor, then the fact that I have a nice mother is not a privilege. Those two things aren't yeah. even correlated, right? They don't actually. So people oftentimes, because they're always looking at success and, and the quality of life monetarily, it's a reflection of, of what we value in society, right? We only yeah. look at that. And so we say, well, if you have money, you're successful and you must be happy and everything else in your life is good. And if you don't have money, then you're a failure and, you know, you, whatever, whatever, whatever. And that's just such a basic way of, of looking at existence. It's not accurate um, or um, considerate. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at privilege, uh, to summarize sort of what I sort of pick up in there is like privilege is really just an inability to understand someone else's perspective mm. or not even, not even inability, but just like there's no real necessity to do that. Right. And so if right. you've got no need to think about someone else, why would you? And to, I feel like in the sense of change, cause you brought up some really good points there about, you know, like you're more privileged because you're, born taller and with a more compassionate mum and so it really comes back to I think if we want to change not just you know the the racial uh, stereotypes but just um, so many more different stereotypes in this world it comes back to 
sitting in someone else's shoes. Would you? Would you say? Would you say to really yeah, start empowering, empowering the like human or up leveling the human consciousness that we need to really start thinking about what it feels like to be in someone else's shoes? One hundred percent. I mean, that for me is the source of connection and compassion. And and when you feel that someone is you, right? Yeah. You, r- relationship. The core. The the root is, is to relate. And the yep. problem is, is the reason we are able to not feel moved by someone else's suffering is because they are them, not us, right? And yeah. so when you look at a culture or you look at a race and you say, oh, those people, they're X, Y, and Z, and you have to, you have to attribute qualities that you don't identify with. They're lazy. They're violent. They're ignorant. They're, I'm... Uh, proactive, right? I work hard. I am um, compassionate. I am peaceful, mm. right? You have to feel that you're different than them in order to uh, disconnect and not feel moved. Because if you felt that they were you, you would do something. If that was your sister, and for some people it is, right? That was your yep. daughter. That was your husband on the streets getting shot or, you know, being exposed to uh, or having the lack of exposure to proper education, all of these things, you would want to do something about it, right? So mm-hmm. the the overarching, and I like what you said before, is that oftentimes privilege is having the uh, experience where you're not forced to look at someone else's experience or put yourself mm-hmm. in someone else's shoes. It takes yeah. effort because it's really nice and easy to just... Mm-hmm. Go about your life the way you want to go and until you're affected by it. And yeah. then it changes, right? And compassion is oftentimes, and empathy is oftentimes built and born through suffering, which is why it's yeah. really hard for people to look at it and see it, right? There are documentaries and there are stories and you watch videos. And, and when people look at this, it's hard for your heart not to break. So what do they yeah. do as another protection mechanism is they start to seek all the stories, right? They say, well, you know, if that person hadn't resisted arrest, then it wouldn't have been a problem. If that person, well, that person has a criminal past. They're not a good person. And it's like, they, this is the mind trying to defend all of its uh, implicit or, or sort of, I should say, instinctual feelings of the heart to break. The heart wants to break, but the only way you can keep it intact is to tell a story of reality that justifies what's happening. Otherwise, you have to swallow the very bitter pill that this world might be a place with a lot of evil and a lot of injustice and a lot of things that just don't sit right with you. And that's mm-hmm. going to force you to change. And so, and change is uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable for all of us to be in this moment now and go, wow, you know, this is a, as they say, like a come to Jesus moment. Like we're, we're being crucified uh, for all these things that we've allowed to persist that have really been living under the surface that for some people in their reality has been more prominent and and uh, uh, visceral, and for others is you know really just something that they used to watch and sort of distance themselves from because of the the lack of like you said before being forced into it. Yeah. And so, uh, totally. So yeah, hmm. man. There's so there's so many I think systemic issues right now, which like you mentioned the the crime rates, the school dropout rates. This is this is all come from, I believe, in a sense of like deep conditioning from 
hundreds of years, right? Would you agree with that? Is there, is there some more that you'd like to add to that? Where do you feel like these systemic issues are really coming from? Well, yeah, the source of it, if we really want to get down to where it's coming from, is it's fear. It's our relationship to power, right? It's all of these things because mm-hmm. we, ha- we all have it in different and varying degrees, like even amongst different groups, right? Even within a certain race, there's different classes. And in those classes, yeah. people have power struggles. People have identity issues of whether it's the white, you know, we have white collar and blue collar in America and the yeah. working class versus the, you know, other class. And, and so, <clears throat> so a lot of this to me is really about the historical relationship to power and the lack thereof, right? And people not wanting and positionality. Nobody wants, if you're sitting at the top of the mountain, you don't, you're not going to say, Hey, I'm up here. And you know, there's a lot of food up here and there's a lot of, most people say, okay, well, I'm in a good situation now. Let me do everything I can do to preserve that. So this is why mm-hmm. uh, from a, from a, a, a systematic perspective, racism and classism benefits other people. Because when you're looking at people who are uneducated and you've got corporations where you have to, you know, fulfill certain roles that haven't been fulfilled by robots yet, and you want to have the leverage to pay people less because you know they have less options. And we also know in America, the prison system is privatized, which is a huge problem, right? Police departments have quotas, which is a huge problem, right? So they're not, they're not rewarded for less crime existing. They're re- rewarded for having more arrests and writing more tickets. So you, mm. you, and I read something recently that like the rate of violent crimes has gone down, but the rate of arrests have gone up because cops have just started arresting people for more petty crimes because that's how they have to exchange it. So we have way, way more prisoners yeah. and people in jail for things that really aren't true uh, uh, um, threats to society, right? And so yeah. to me, it's all, it's all a game of power. And how do you position yourself if you're in power? You figure out who's going to be on your team. And people decided that the people who are on our team are going to be based on class and race. And this is how the game's being played. Yeah, man. Yeah, I feel you. And I just want to touch on, you mentioned about Eminem and this is a very, this is a really cool point because we are just going to wrap this sort of like area up on privilege. And mm-hmm. I know that there, there are a lot of people um, that may feel guilty. I know my partner sort of had this sort of come up with her and, and she does like, she's quite proactive with making sure that she does give back and, and she's very compassionate and empathetic. Uh, empathetic but whereas I had a different upbringing so I didn't quite feel that same sort of guilt as her so my mum's indigenous from New Zealand and so Mm -hmm. just having different perspectives was very interesting but what I really was drawn to when you mentioned about Eminem growing up coming into the the hip-hop game as a white person was not privileged whatsoever right yeah talk to me about that I actually thought about that more too after I mentioned that in my video, and I think he 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 had a paradox, right, of being yeah. extremely disadvantaged, and then something that he acknowledged later on in a lot of his music was, you know, um, that you know, first we knew that black that hip hop was predominantly a black person's art form, and uh, that anybody coming into the world of hip hop, there was always this like feeling, from what I observed, of really needing street credibility right feeling authentic mm-hmm. because if people didn't feel you were authentic whether you're black or white people just rejected you and it was really hard for people to go you know and see someone who was white because the black experience isn't oftentimes the same person the same as the white experience and so Eminem was like 
really a trailblazer. People could say, okay, there are people like Vanilla Ice before, and you know, he kind of had like a pop song. I don't know if people really ever saw him as a like hip hop artist. And so when he came in, all the odds were against him. You saw what his experience was like and the way that mm-hmm. people made fun of him. And, and he really had, which is why he had to be the best. And a lot of people would mm-hmm. argue that he is and was one of the best and still, you know, he still has a career now, but one of the best hip hop artists to ever exist because people couldn't yeah. re- refute him based on his skin. And I think this is very similar to the black experience, right? If you see someone who's a black CEO of a company that has predominantly all white people in it, you're like, well, okay, this guy's, there's no doubt he must be the best because he didn't get there because of his race, most likely, right? And so you can't say that. I think in different environments, people have what's called, they call it like the low hand, right? It's like where you just have an advantage because of things that you couldn't control. You know, you walk into a group, there's 10 other guys there and you're the 11th guy. Yeah, there's some sort of relatability. If you're the only women in that situation, there's probably yeah. things that work to your advantage and disadvantage, right? Because maybe now you've got your choice of who your mate's going to be from 10 other men. But you also, if the topic of conversation is something else, maybe you're now competing in a way that you didn't want to have to. So for Eminem, he had a very, he had a strong disadvantage early on, but I think he had a, a huge advantage later on. And what was that? He acknowledged it. He said, you know, that now my audience is that much bigger. Because now I have a bunch of white people identifying with me and they've got resources, they've got money to buy my music and I'm the first one. So there's, there's always, there's kind of a paradox of things. And I think that his, his career was an example of that, of how he was able to speak to another group of people after he broke through the doors. And it also created a lot more of a, a revolt against his music because white mothers were just feeling like, they didn't want their kids listening to this, this, these, you know, obscene things and these crazy things because he was talking about killing his own mom and all that other stuff. And so, yeah, his situation is is really a unique reflection it, on sort of the paradox of privilege. It's so powerful, isn't it? It, it just, it just like blows my mind, especially the adversity that he faced. Like, uh, with like he had fucking nothing. Like he was in a trailer park. And yep. I mean, yeah, it's just such a powerful experience. And I think in in all and all is where there is adversity, there is prosperity too. If you, if you choose to look at it as an opportunity yeah, for anyone, exactly. listening, right. And man, the, the George, the George Floyd challenge, this was crazy. Right. Um, mm. And I know, and I know you did a post on this and talked about this and wh- how did you respond when you saw that? And for those people don't, not listening, maybe just explain sort of what came forward with that. Yeah. So there was a, a very short-lived trend um, uh, recently where there were people who were basically taking photographs, and these were white people taking photographs of them uh, with their knee on someone else's neck, kind of posing, smiling, thumbs up, and they called it the George Floyd Challenge. They were uh, reenacting the way that George Floyd died. Now, this is beyond uh, sick and ignorant from my experience, and simultaneously, it was interesting because I went through like this, like we all do, right, around things. We have this uh, evolution of emotions and perspectives, mm-hmm. hopefully, right? So first when I saw it, I thought, wow, this is interesting. I thought that they were trying to raise awareness by like putting someone else mm-hmm. in that position to see how you perceived it, which I thought, well, that's actually kind of creative and interesting as a campaign. And then I started to see, wait, they're smiling. There's a different kind of energy here. Oh, yeah. this is actually malicious. This is, this is a... Uh, you know, they're making light and fun of this person and the way that he died. That's disturbing. Um, And then I started to kind of put myself in their experience of, 
what world do I live in where anybody's death, how disconnected am I as a human being to take anybody's death, doesn't matter what the situation is, and make light of it in that way, make it a joke, make it some sort of social media campaign. And I started to have a little bit of compassion and just feel sorry for them because I know that, you know, nobody gets out of here alive, right? And mm -hmm. as much as we like to think that there are people who are getting away with things, I, I feel like you're going to, uh, you know, you're going to get crucified now or later. At some point in life, you do get humbled and you realize that life is bigger than your ego. And I feel mm -hmm. the earlier that happens, the more time you have at the later stages of your life to live in a more honest, truthful, and free way, a more compassionate and connected way. And if you go the majority of your life believing that, you know, death is just for some people and we're going to go ahead and make fun of it, like you, you can't see the future. And so um, I feel bad for those people. And at the same time, I also see then the reason I posted it was because I knew that it was going to hurt a lot of people because I just know that it's just a, it's a very strong thing to see. I was thinking, am I going to post this? Am I not going to post it? But I also felt like there are still a lot of people that don't realize the degree to which racism and ignorance exists in our world, right? They, this is what they're waking up to. And so for me, while when I see something like that, I'm like, I'm sad, but I'm not surprised. I also know that this is actually going to wake some people up to realize the depth of what's happening because these are not just people who are, you know, uh, citizens that have no influence. This is a reflection of a lot of people, not just them. And, and it might not be the majority, but it might be who knows what the percentage is. But these are people who might be managers of companies, right? They might mm -hmm. own real estate. These are people who exist and have influence in society in lesser and larger degrees. And so if you start to realize this is a, this is a part of our atmosphere, mm. it starts to start, you know, to confirm the reflection that black Americans are talking about and black people all around the world as to why they feel disenfranchised, why they feel repressed, because sometimes racism in these situations is overt or ignorance is overt. But then in other situations, it's unseen, you know, when that when the CEO of a company is hiring somebody and hires somebody because they're white instead of black, even though the black person might be more qualified or whatever it is, these might be more unconscious and less uh, uh, overt and unseen, but they have huge implications, right? When a judge sentences someone to, you know, five or 10 years more because of their perceptions of that person, th these things have huge consequences, but we don't often see them. And so I think you have to see the the gross and overt manifestations of these things to really understand where are you? What is the world, you know, mm. as we're getting, and it can be kind of overwhelming because so much information is coming out every single day now around this that I think some people are just being paralyzed and crippled by the amount yeah. of things that they're having to see and witness. And also oh, yeah. we're starting to see the world in a different way. It's kind of like you grow up as a kid and you think Santa Claus is real. And they're like, oh, actually Santa Claus isn't real. And your dad brought you all those toys and we probably have to take some back actually because we couldn't afford like you know you're like whoa yeah, yeah, like yeah. the rug is being pulled from under my feet and it's sobering and it's can be depressing and disheartening um which is why i think a lot of people resist resist any notion yeah. that it could be possible uh but at the same time you know we have to we have to really accept reality before it's kind of like the 12 steps like you have to just acknowledge where you're at first and foremost before you're going to change it Totally do. I mean, that's the power of social media right now. Fuck that. Got this is just can be spread like wildfire oh, in yeah. the pursuit of 
powerful change. How good is that? I mean, I, I don't know what happened to those guys, but I know Preston shared them and you shared them. And I, I think that that photo was shared quite a few times. So like, I mean, every action has an equal opposite reaction, right? A consequence. So people to really start to change, I think they've got to start seeing what their actions might lead to here, especially in a world now where we're waking up quick and it's about, it's about human compassion and for all beings, right? Like it's just free, even from all sentient beings, regardless of the race, it's just mm-hmm. like, let's what we're trying to move towards here. I think this is a lot of your yep. work is like in, in peace, which stems to world peace. Like really? That's right. That's right. Uh, I love it because, you know, a couple of things that came to me as you were speaking is um, Sadhguru, uh, who's an amazing yeah. person who's doing a lot of work and he's got great videos on YouTube, but I watched something he posted recently and he was saying how, you know, you can't have selective compassion or empathy. You know, you, you treat the pig like crap and you kill them and then you think but you know for people i'll treat them differently and he says there's going to become a moment where you see a human being and treat them like a pig and because you Mm. just don't like them and so this selective compassion and empathy uh creates a situation where it's just going to bleed over to human beings and Mm. so you can't control that because it's a quality and uh, a quality of being and also reflecting on Thich Nhat Hanh, who talked about in re- relationship to people's uh, desire to heal the environment and save the world, save the planet, the planet, you know, environmentalism as a movement. And he said, you can't seek to save a planet when you can't save yourself, right? If you can't mm. take care of your own life and save you one as a human being, why are you trying to save the planet? That's, that's a missed, uh, misguided uh, directive of of intention because it all starts with every individual. If every individual starts to become extremely accountable, extremely compassionate in their own life, extremely which you know we we can't force on other people, right? So we can only control ourselves. And so even in this conversation, I'm constantly looking at where are these qualities that I'm trying to invite other people to eradicate in themselves. Where are they present inside of me? Right. Where, where am I unconscious of my privilege? Where am I unconscious of my, my use of power and positionality? All of those things, because that's if I if I demand the world to change, the world may or may not change. But if I change, guaranteed, the world has changed because I'm a part of it. Totally. And that, that's like the energy speaks louder than words, right? And then the, when mm-hmm. you start changing, even just that observation, that internal awareness or reflection it shifts something in you, your frequency changes, that observation changes, you see something different, now your actions will um, change accordingly as well. And so then when, that's why I say to everyone as well, it's like, guys, as soon as, as soon as you see something within yourself, in someone else, you change, then that energy will just protrude into anyone else's field. And that's the powerful part, yeah. Andrew, right? The powerful part is like that's the right. energy well, shift in you yeah, that's a hundred percent correct. Because then, through osmosis, you can give someone the experience. It's a different thing to talk about peace and to be screaming about mm. peace than to actually be peaceful. When you feel that in somebody, it's a tangible, living reality. Someone said that action is the evidence of knowing. Right? What you are 
expresses your philosophy. What did Gandhi say, right? He said, my, my life is my message. So you can, as much as I feel it is valuable to have these conversations, it's equally or more important to be cognizant of where we have these conversations from, how we have these conversations. So engage, right? Don't avoid it all, but be conscious of your own energy and what it is that you're uh, perpetuating. And the last thing that I want to say is recently, and I've been reflecting on this a lot, you know, because a lot of us, we want the world to change and we're fighting against an existing reality. And I came across this quote by Buckminster Fuller, who was a great, great inventor. And he said that you'll never, and I'm paraphrasing, but in essence, you'll never (laughs) solve a problem by challenging the existing reality. You have to uh, basically evolve beyond that re- existing reality to create the world you want to live in so that the previous paradigm becomes irrelevant. And so yeah. what we're doing in some situations, and I do also see a lot of people who are putting their attention towards positive change and things that are proactive, which I think is, is crucial, but sometimes we spend so much of our time trying to argue and justify our perspectives and opinions and that same energy could be utilized to actually just create a positive world. So think about it this way. It's like taking one step towards humanity is more powerful than arguing with a thousand people about why you should take one step towards humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's powerful, bro. Fuck. It's almost like, I mean, that quote is so good. I'm going to look that one up. It, it, the uh, out, You outgrow basically your environment and then you just shift out of it and that the, the old environment just becomes irrelevant. I think that everyone listening to this, obviously the, this podcast is all about that strong personal growth, that strong internal reflection and feeling alive from within. And I think as we you know, listen to these podcasts, listen to your perspective. We're con we're, we're consciously creating, I mean, we're, we're, we're creating a new level of self-knowledge. And then would you say that that new level of self-knowledge is one way of how we're going to start, you know, changing and up-leveling and upgrading just by like listening to you or listening to Sadhguru or reading a book on Thich Nhat Hanh? That's how we do it, right? Yeah. That's the only way to do it. Otherwise, because, mm. you know, what we're experiencing now is a reflection of who we have been and who we are as humans, right? The, the most beautiful parts of our evolution and the ugliest parts of our lack of evolution. We are seeing it and we are experiencing it always. And so you'll never create a more compassionate and loving world through ideas and through concepts and through uh, people I often say kind of doing the choreography, but not feeling the music, right? It's like, you can Mm. say, well, this is what a more compassionate world looks like on paper, but you don't have people who have compassion in their hearts and love in their hearts. And so we have to know that this is a spiritual, emotional uh, evolution that's being demanded of us right now and invited within us, because there's never a physical solution to a spiritual problem. And asking people to have compassion uh, is part of this process. And the last thing that I want to say about it is that as people are listening to talks like these and gathering more information, it's 
critical that we allow these things to hit us in our heart. Because if mm. it just becomes more stuff to talk about and think about, then it's cerebral mm. gymnastics. It's just more stuff. It's not going to change you. And so oftentimes the things that are the most difficult to see and hear about and witness are the things that are going to have the greatest impact. Because imagine someone, you know, if you can't watch someone's life story, you can't watch a documentary about someone who is maybe wrongfully in prison, right? Because it's so painful to watch. Then imagine someone actually experienced that. That was someone's life. So you can't even watch it, but someone had to experience that. You can't watch it for an hour and 30 minutes, but that was someone's existence for years and years and years. Same thing when it comes to slavery or anything else. So, you know, move towards the discomfort because the discomfort is showing you and me where we need to grow. And remember that the, the fraction of discomfort that we experience is nothing in comparison to the amount of it, discomfort and challenge that someone else probably experienced actually having gone through that. And that's so beautiful. Well, beautifully said. And I guess this ties into sort of where we're going to end now on, on some takeaways for people. I think um, some practical steps now, you know, not just listening to these conversations or having them with like, you know, some like-minded friends, but having those uncomfortable conversations. What are some really practical uh, takeaways that we can give people listening right now that they can help make this change or make this shift on an individual level? Yeah, I think number one is taking personal inventory, right? where the ways that in your life, these qualities that we're attempting to eradicate through these conversations, where is it persisted in your existence? Where are the places in your life that you have been complicit and there are maybe people around you that you haven't had conversations with, either about things that you've done or that they've said or done that you maybe didn't agree with, but you, your silence made them feel that you, agree, mm -hmm. that you agreed with it? Um, and then expanding your perspective, right? I'm learning so much right now. And as I say, knowledge is power. You know, watch documentaries. If you haven't seen 13th, watch that documentary. Um, if you don't know about, um, you know, Black Wall Street, learn about Black Wall Street. Like, really start to educate yourself. And I know you, um, being from another part of the world, there are a lot of content that I'm sure you can share with your audience too, if, if your audience is in that space. And just even learning more because the, the whole history of aboriginal culture which and and the Sorry. sort of co colonialization of australia is even more recent than america but has such profound and similar parallels it's pretty much the same thing right it's that you know what happened to native americans the way that they're treated culturally the economic situation there's so many parallels that you can see actually throughout the world that it's not just about america america is a reflection of you know even how in the uk these things are happening it's just all over the world as a whole that we need to look at. And so educating yourself is really powerful. And mm. to be, you know, to have conversations, to talk about it, and then see where you're moved to act. Because I am a strong proponent of people finding authentic expressions in all realms, right, for themselves, and to not feel like you have to fall in line with what the status quo is and what you want to do. You know, create your own initiatives, right? Feel into what feels aligned for you of how you want to be moved into participating in creating a more beautiful world. But it starts with the being. Being mm. and then doing, right? Doing is always a symptom and a byproduct of being. So we have to change first. So that internal work is 
oftentimes the thing we avoid because it's the most challenging, but it's the thing that's going to have the most lasting result. Because if I'm doing something that feels forced and it's not inspired, right? Anybody who's a part of this movement right now and they're kind of playing the role, like they're doing the dance, but it feels efforted because they feel like this is, you know, I have an obligation to do it or whatever it is, that's going to die out really quick, right? Because it's not a strong burning fire of inspiration and passion and a, and, and a fire in your heart to really see the world evolve into a more loving space. So we have to nurture that first and foremost. And then as a byproduct of that, all the beautiful things that need to happen, which are known and unknown to us, will manifest. Yeah, yeah. Man, thank you very much for that. It's like healed, healed people, heal people. And I think that's a big proponent of, of just life in general is that when we start to you know work through our own limiting beliefs, our unhealed traumas or pains of our past, I think inevitably we will actually start stop projecting so much of our pain onto others. And I think you mm. see a lot of this stuff happening now, right? It's like I, well, I remember seeing the George Floyd incident on Instagram and I just thought, Oh, we've got to keep, we've got to heal because he was like had this power control over George at that point where he literally could have just got up and he didn't want to. And I was like, I wonder what happened to him in his life where he had no power or no control, and now he has to exercise it on someone who is um, he can take advantage of. And do, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Is like at yeah. what at what point does I mean, this healing is so necessary because you've got a you've got a belief system in there that says power is is um, positive, and you know, beating someone up is positive, and that's that's a belief system. That's a belief system that mm-hmm. isn't of love. And so, yeah, I think it's and really it's, important. A lot of times, these expressions of what we call power aren't power, right? It's not mm. true. Po- only only real power is power of self. Right, your your ability to really have dominion over your own and and emotional spiritual sovereignty over your state of being, that's the only power in this world. And people uh, have these what they see as external reflections of power, but power over really comes from insecurity, right? Because you feel vulnerable if you don't have power over. So to even seek it, to want to have power over other people, is an expression of your your. it, sense of ina- inadequacy because mm-hmm. uh, it's like someone said once that only people who are insecure seek security right mm. so if you're not insecure then you have no need for it and it's like it just kind of just your existence right it's like people mm. who really can fight oftentimes don't need to because they can fight so it becomes this paradox of, of exercising a certain way of being and so internally yeah we got to check in with that and and yeah humans are you know Humans aren't perfect. They're flawed uh, in some ways, depending on how you look at it. But we, we are giving humans, which I think is also interesting when I look at people fighting the cops and I'm like, people question why people fight cops. And I think it's because when you're there in that moment, there's something very human inside of you that says, this is not right. Like beyond the, the law and societies that humans have created, right? Just a fabrication we've created. There's something wrong about another man or human being having that kind of dominion over you as a sovereign human being. And so I feel like our instinct is to resist that. Someone throws you on the ground and you don't know them. What are you going to do? What? Okay, yeah, that's fine. That's nice. Like, just do what you want. Yeah, put your, put your knee on my neck. And they tell you, oh, stop resisting. It's like, but what am I surrendering to? Right? What am I not resisting? Like, I have to resist mm-hmm. something that feels tyrannical or oppressive or unjust, right? In this situation, that feels wrong. 
And so mm. it's kind of an interesting thing that we're, I think, trying to get people to go beyond their instincts when they're being abused in some situations. And every situation is different, right? I want to speak too broadly, but I've just reflected too on, on how the collective narratives, like people don't put themselves in that position of feeling like, wow, there's an unjust and unrighteous un, un, uh, power that is now being opposed upon me that is inhumane and that is only uh, empowered by the state and the system, but on a human level, right, it doesn't feel right. And so oftentimes I feel that's what people resist. And so then it ends up in situations where it becomes very violent. Yeah, man. Well said. So the last question I've got for you, brother, uh, we've given some such good, you've given us such good perspectives. Uh, the next question, the last question is, if you had a billboard right now and you could put anything on it, what would that be? Wow, that's powerful. Um, you know, there's this really interesting quote um, about how, like, who, who said it? Uh, I don't remember. But there was a writer who talked about how, you know, they, they, wrote a long letter and at the end of the letter they said i i apologize for writing a long letter i didn't have enough time to write a short one right so it feels like in this moment it's like i i like to be so thoughtful especially in things that feel critical it's to me the message is love it's always love but how you frame that for people and where they are now to me it's such a it's such a powerful thing that i would hate to you know spend 20 seconds um sharing something that might have you know really long lasting impact because I, I like to be as thoughtful as i can with with my words and what i share and so um yeah maybe i'll get back to you with that but for me as a central theme as a central theme it's it's really it's really a message of love of how do we love yeah. one another and be an example of that and how do you reflect that in a way that can get inside of people's hearts because i also know that the notion of of and and words are so alive and they change yeah. and they mean different things for different people so i feel like when we craft messages we have to be so aware of who's listening to it in the same way yeah. i often say like the way you speak to a child is going to be different than the way you speak to a peer and the way you might speak to an elder and it might be the same message but because it's a different audience you have to craft your message differently and so um maybe if anything uh if anyone can gain anything from your question and my response is just to really understand how critical and important it is that we are sensitive with our communication because you know, words have the ability to start wars, like quite literally, mm. and to heal nations, quite literally. Mm. And so if we are impeccable enough with our speech and understand the power of it, then we will not be um, flagrant or belligerent with the way that we communicate with others because of the way that it will ripple out and affect other people's lives. Mm. Man, so eloquently put. I understand how hard, how difficult that question is. It's like there's a lot of people laughing. <laughs> it's like, it's it's really hard. It's a really really tough question. I get that. Mm. <laughs> uh, maybe it's yeah. my thing of like, yes, I got you. But um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. brother, I really love how you explain that. And again, thank you so much for your time, man, and and for for putting in the effort to describe your perspective on on what's happening in america right now and in the world and what's been happening for hundreds of years so again thank you brother mm. yeah thank you for this invitation and and i hope that you know more messages like this reach far and wide so we can have powerful conversations and and transform humanity because 
I always think about how, you know, this is just a grand, like the stories we tell ourselves about what is real and what's important. It's such a grand uh, illusion or a grand awakening because we've created all of this and we can create something new if we can see it. Right? We can create a loving world if we can see it. And so I hope that we all are able to utilize the faculty of our minds and our vision to develop a world that is more loving and compassionate for everyone. Totally, brother. The power of the mind. Thank you so much, man. And thank you, everyone, right. to listening to this to the end. And, and I think it's a really important message that we do uh, start to have more conversations like this in our lives and to start sharing these. And you know, everyone's sharing these on videos on Instagram to raise awareness of the the demographic privilege that's in this world. But again, if you could share this episode, screenshot it tag myself and, and Andrew thankful Andrew on social media and tell us what you think that would be greatly appreciated much love and until next time take care ladies and gentlemen you are at the end of the podcast and congratulations because you are the small 1% that actually listens to this outro I don't know if anyone ever does I've probably listened to 2% of them but guess what I'm going to tell you something very, very special. I'm going to give you the secret recipe to life. There you have it. Secret recipe, you say? Well, what is it, Luca? And that is take action, my friends. Have courage. Have faith. Trust the process. You're exactly where you need to be. This journey isn't easy. This journey is challenging. But guess what? Life is. And the only way we evolve as a human species, the only way we grow is through challenge. We also need a community, <laughs> the community of like-minded fellows, like-minded ladies, gentlemen, who are all seeking the best version of themselves. And what does that require? It requires us sharing this message, showing people that you are on a better path. So screenshot this episode, tag a friend and tag me and tell us your biggest takeaway. Thank you so much and until next time, peace.